I'm Krista Tippett. Today, former Islamist extremist Ed Hussein. In its fervor to deter terrorist acts, he says, the West is failing to understand the long-term threat, a spreading mindset that makes him and others susceptible to radicalization in the first place. This hour, he takes us inside pivotal territory of modern life, the personality of a suicide bomber, and the critical inner dialogue of Muslims in and with Western societies. It must be said that al-Qaeda is just a name. It's, it's really a mindset that we must be tackling, literalist, rejectionist, Islamist worldview, and not necessarily al-Qaeda as an organization, because that can become defunct, but those ideas still remain. So it's not a war on terror, as the American government has gone out of its way to suggest, but it's actually a battle of ideas. This is Speaking of Faith. Stay with us. Speaking of Faith is supported by the Fetzer Institute, sponsor of Karen Armstrong's Charter for Compassion. You can learn more at Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett. The news is once again full of Western resolve to fight terrorism and tighten airport security. But are we in the meantime failing to diagnose and address the larger threat that makes all this necessary? My guest this hour, Ed Hussein, sparked debate and soul-searching across Great Britain with his 2007 memoir, The Islamist, Why I Became an Islamic Fundamentalist, What I Saw Inside, and Why I Left. I'm finding much-needed clarity and critical perspective on this present moment through the conversation I had with him, and so we're presenting it again to you. Ed Hussein was born into an immigrant family but grew up middle class. The radical, politicized Islam that drew him in for a time flourished at the heart of educated British culture. He shrank back after coming close to a murder. People he loved and admired became suicide bombers. And so Ed Hussein's personal story illuminates some of the most dangerous territory of modern life. He takes us there this hour and challenges some of the West's most pervasive, instinctive reactions to it. From American Public Media, this is Speaking of Faith, public radio's conversation about religion, meaning, ethics, and ideas. Today, reflections of a former Islamist extremist. Muslims comprise something over 3% of the British population, which makes them the second largest religious group in an officially Anglican yet culturally secularized society. And people of Bangladeshi and Pakistani descent who make up the majority of Muslims in Britain are that society's economically poorest ethnic groups. Yet when two cars filled with explosives were discovered in central London in the summer of 2007 and a burning jeep driven into the Glasgow airport, the perpetrators were doctors, engineers, medical students, and lab technicians. The suicide bombers who killed themselves and 52 others in the London transport system two years earlier were led by a teacher. That happened on July 7, 2005, and has entered British vocabulary as 7-7, Britain's 9-11. Ed Hussein's book, The Islamist, took that country by storm after it was published in 2007. And he's been a leading figure ever since in challenging the West's approach both to Islam and to national security. For most policymakers, their concern is when's the next bomb going to go off and how are we going to prevent that from happening? As long as we're secure, who cares what's going on um, among the minutiae details of Muslim communal discourse? And as a result, they just think pumping money into resources, be it socioeconomic or tweaking foreign policy, is somehow going to fix this problem. It's not. It's much deeper. to speak with Ed Hussein to understand those deeper dynamics that he began to know intimately at the age of 16 and the implications of his experiences for other Muslims in Western societies. He was born in 1975 in London. His parents came to Britain from India and East Pakistan, which became Bangladesh. But he grew up middle class and well-educated. Ed is short for Muhammad. 
you were born and raised in Britain. You were not an immigrant. You were perhaps living in in a culture that was defined by immigrants. But, you know, talk to me a little bit about your British identity and, and why your link to that was susceptible or vulnerable or, or tenuous so that you uh, were captured by some of these ideas. We have a real problem in Britain. It was the case when I was growing up, and it's still the case now, in that it's extremely difficult to define Britishness, whereas in America it's different. You have a very clear sense of national identity. We don't have that here. There's the the, the Welsh issue, the Scottish issue, and the uh, Irish issue that compounds this problem and then bring into the mix people who arrived in Britain in the 1960s after the uh, winding up of the British Empire in in, in the West Indies and in India, you have a group of people who arrived here, you know, my parents' generation, initially for economic purposes, with with some hope of, you know, going back, as it were, one day. And that going back never happened. So my generation, born and raised here, were confused as to where our parents stood. At home, we were exposed to one culture. At school, we were exposed to another. So Britishness was never clearly defined for uh, my generation growing up. And the fact that we've got communities up and down the country that live totally separate lives. I mean, in the name of multiculturalism, we've created these monocultural ghettos in Bradford, Birmingham, Burnley, parts of London, where there's no interaction between, uh, you know, native white English communities and uh, the children of immigrants. So it's, it's very much a live problem here in Britain. And I have a sense that when you first became attracted to a kind of politicized Islam, initially not necessarily extremist, but just that some of the words you used to describe what you found worthy in what you were experiencing was that, you know, it sounds like it almost seemed to bridge some of these different Mm -hmm. aspects of your identity that weren't bridged in the culture. You said it was English-speaking, educated, rooted in faith. See, when we went to mosques, when I went to mosques, Mm -hmm. um, most of the imams came from Pakistan, Bangladesh, India. They spoke about an Islam that was very much village-based, a folkloric Islam. It wasn't something that people like myself, born and raised here in Britain in a different cultural, social, political setup, could easily relate to. We were always given Islam in a second language, the language of our parents, Urdu, Bengali, whatever. But suddenly, when I reached my teens, there were these young people who spoke Islam in a language that I easily identified with, i.e. English. So it took me a while to cotton on to the fact that the sort of Islam they were trying to sell to people like myself was an Islam that was at odds with my parents' more sufistic, Mm. traditional, orthodox Islam. But the English-speaking radicals were trying to promote a a type of Islam that was, you know, Islamist, politicized. But against that, there was something else going on in the early 1990s here in Europe that people often forget, and that was the entire Balkan crisis. Right. Between 91 and 94, you had large numbers of uh, Muslims in Bosnia who were white, blonde, blue-eyed, being slaughtered in their thousands. And when people from you know Arab countries who had taken political refuge in Britain, Omar Bakris and others, came and said to us that, uh, look, two hours away from London's Heathrow Airport, you've got people who are being slaughtered in their in their in their thousands, despite being European Muslims for six hundred years. What chance do people like you and I, who are brown-skinned, black-haired? got in in the long term here in Britain. So for a 16-year-old who's not entirely comfortable in being in Britain, that message, you know, has a strong resonance. Right. You were really galvanized by events in Bosnia, weren't you? Certainly, yes. And I think the same thing is going on today with Iraq, with lots of young Muslims, but most certainly Bosnia politicized me, yes. And I think what's also important that I'd like to just hear you talk some more about is, you know, it wasn't just that you were discovering a way of thinking about Islam and about faith, but really a view of history um, mm. that in some ways was very empowering, challenging and empowering. Yes, it, it was a view of history which was empowering, but at the same time, it was a view that was very simplistic. Mm-hmm. Um, looking back, I think Marx and Engels in the Communist Manifesto start by saying that the history of all societies hitherto has been a history of class struggle. In other words, them and us. Similarly, the kind of history that I was understanding while being, you know, beside people who had an extremist worldview was very much the same thing, that all history is a history of struggle between good and evil and them and us. And the good in this case tended to be Muslims by and large and evil everybody else. Mm -hmm. So it was looking at the world through that prism and everything started to make sense when you looked at the world 
through that set of spectacles that the entire world was somehow out there to undermine Muslims. There was a global conspiracy against Muslims, Freemasons, Jews, Americans, everybody but Muslims themselves. It was blaming the other constantly throughout history and in today's world. And it's a very powerful grip on one's mind. And it, in my case, it took years to, to shed that influence. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is Speaking of Faith from American Public Media, today exploring Ed Hussein's unique perspective on the long-term nature of the Islamist threat and Western society's response to it. This is explored in his memoir, The Islamist, why I became an Islamic fundamentalist, what I saw inside, and why I left. Hussein describes his progressive radicalization beginning at age 16, from an initial curiosity to the exhilaration of jockeying over ideology and power with other student groups, and then helping lead a Muslim Students Association to what he calls an Islamization of the public space at an East London college. Central to Ed Hussein's passion was the concept of the Ummah, the global Muslim community which could transcend other identities, boundaries, and balances of power. He came to feel most powerfully part of the Ummah as an active member of Hisbut Tahrir, an organization with a prominent presence in British mosques and universities. And Ed Hussein is quick to add that it is not a terrorist organization. But in the absence of a larger context of societal integration, he says, a group like this can incline vulnerable young people to a separatist and potentially violent path. There, he first read the work of the post-colonial Egyptian author Sayyid Qutb, an original ideologue of the Muslim Brotherhood. In his books, including Milestones, Qutb presented a politically radical and religiously Puritan reading of Islamic history and of the Quran. He remains a globally influential, revolutionary Islamist writer today. Ed Hussein calls Qutb's Milestones the communist manifesto of Islamism. Well, Qutb spent time in America in the 1950s, and there was something about Qutb that made sense for us. I guess the fact that his book was translated into English and the fact that he was in prison and he stood up to tyranny, um, he had commented on the Quran, and he was seen to be a martyr because the Egyptian government hanged him in 1966. Mm. So all of that combined um, gave him hero status among young Muslims on college campuses in the 1990s. More to the point, young Islamists, i.e. people who believed in a politicised form of religion, you know, very postmodern, it's, uh, it's, it's a new development. Um, so Said Qutb had that powerful capture over our minds. I mean, I'm not suggesting for an instance that everybody who reads his book becomes a terrorist, but those who read his book and then impart those ideas to those who then attend meetings up and down Britain and you know, Europe and Middle East and so on, are grabbed by the fact that he defined the world very much in a bipolar sense, that there was the Muslim vanguard who was over and above other Muslims. So it was very much uh, a Marxist, Gramscian way of looking at the world. Mm. Not do you have just Muslims, but you have a vanguard Muslim group over and above everybody else who leads the Muslim community into confronting the West, um, into confronting the non-believing world. And uh, he compounded the Darul Islam, the world of Islam, the Darul Kufr, the world of non-believer hypothesis uh, to its maximum. And... I think his power lay in the fact that he even argued that the vast majority of Muslim governments were non-Muslim, that they came from what he called jahiliya, in All other right. words. You were not just opposing the West. I mean, the, this worldview had a lot to conquer in the Muslim world as well. Well, this is the key, and this is where I think m most non-Muslims, including most Americans, simply don't understand right. uh, the stakes uh, that we're playing for here, in that th this phenomena, whatever you want to call it, political Islam, extremism, Al-Qaeda worldview, Wahhabism, whatever you want to call it, it threatens Muslims first and foremost, before it goes out to try to undermine the West. Yes. And Said Qutb's worldview was very much based on the fact that we've got to overthrow the Egyptian regime and bring about a holier-than-thou state 
which he called an Islamic state, in itself a myth. But he, that's what he called for. And then that state would go out and attack and undermine Israel and then, you know, the Americans and then... You know, I mean, he, he laid it out and other groups that influenced him um, have put this down in writing in their constitution. So it's, there's no surprise that there's a strong political component to this. And that's why it's not a cliche to say that the West and normal Muslims, moderate Muslims, have common cause in trying to defeat this extremist mindset. Mm. Because it threatens both of us. Right. And and over the years, I've spoken with a number of people who, uh, and not just Muslims, who, as young people, that, you know, that tends to be the rule, became drawn into extremist movements. And, you know, one of the things they've talked about to me is the intoxication and the power that comes with that, that, that meets something in adolescence and young adulthood where one's identity is fragile, where one is looking for a cause and identity. Was that your experience, too? I mean, could you talk about the appeal of this idea to you mm. at that point in your life. And in this milieu, you you know, you really describe British universities and schools where these kinds of ideas were were everywhere. Uh, among among activist Muslims, mm-hmm. I mean, there were plenty of Muslims who got on with their lives and went and did normal things. But those who became part of the activist hub, affiliated by and large with either Islamists or Saudi Wahhabists or Indian Deobandis, th- there are various traditions, but the, the first two are more problematic than the third one. Um, yes, you're right, it's about identity. And that's only uh, attractive to us because we didn't have a strong identity to start off with. Mm-hmm. Um, so when in that void, Islamists come onto the scene and say that, hey, you're not just Muslim, you're more than being an ordinary Muslim, you're a true Muslim with a capital T and a capital M, and your allegiance lies to the global ummah. But alongside that, they brought on board ideas of elitism and secrecy and global power. So being part of this movement meant that you were several cuts above ordinary Muslims. You know, you're by and large superior to non-Muslims, but Mm. of course, even among Muslims, you were seen to be uh, several cuts above others. But also the group I was with for over two years was a very secretive movement that had global cells. And is this um, Hizbut Tahrir? Yes, Hizbut Tahrir. Which tends to be referred to in British newspapers as HT, so we can do that as well, I think. Yes, yes. (laughs) Uh, HT was very secretive, very elitist. Mm -hmm. Um, So you get that extra buzz of trying to keep global secrets and this elite movement that was always full of people who are accountants, doctors, lawyers. So, you know, you were mixing with the upper crust of society, but at the same time, having a worldview that was different from most normal people and planning something, i.e. an Islamist state in the Middle East that would be expansionist and totalitarian. But of course, at the time, we didn't see it as totalitarian. We we saw it as a true faith-based state, Hmm. which, of course, is a misnomer. The world you describe of this student activism is full of drama and factions. And, you know, one journalist mm. wrote in The Guardian, you know, set aside the Muslim names of the people involved and the names of their organizations. And it's a typical tale of student politics. Endless argument, rabble-rousing, leafleting, wildly idealistic theorizing, and some dirty tactics in committee meetings. And I have to say, I had that impression as well, that in some sense, this was a student movement like many student movements. But, but, but I want to ask you, you know, what has changed, what is ratcheted up when religion yes. in general and Islam in particular, radicalized Islam, is in that mix? Yes, I, I know the article you refer to and mm-hmm. I know the journalist you refer to and he's right in his assertion. And he's right because Islamism as a political ideology, and I'm not talking about Islam the faith, but the ideology here, was influenced directly by Marxism. So it's no surprise that mm. you find those very same tactics being employed by Islamists on university campuses. But what's different and what white liberal Westerners tend not to understand, especially here in Britain, because we're such a secular society, it's not about activism to bring about a better tomorrow or a communist state in which everyone's equal, but it's about doing this in the name of God and doing this not only just for this world, but having a better afterlife. Mm. So what would be seen as acting ethically for bringing about a, a better world on the far left? In Islamist circles, that becomes compounded with a sense of religion, a sense of superiority over the inferior non-believer and also looking forward to an afterlife in which if you don't do what they suggest that you must do, you're actually brought to account and, in their world, sent to hell for not standing up for for God and establishing what they call an Islamic state in this world. So there's this fear factor put into this that you're actually carrying out religious obligations and the failure to do so means eternal damnation in the hereafter. So it's quite powerful.
former British Islamist extremist Ed Hussein. All right, here's something else I think in the United States people tend to think about al-Qaeda, just al-Qaeda or Wahhabism, as the center mm. of the greatest threat. The world you describe is much more diverse and varied and chaotic. I, I mean, I do wonder, where was Wahhabism in the mix for you? Does the existence, again, of this um, global movement like al-Qaeda also ratchet up that, that picture even more? Al-Qaeda came on the scene much later. Before Al-Qaeda, there was, as you currently identify, a, a Wahhabist mindset. And I, for a second, don't want to imply that all Wahhabis are terrorists. They're not. But most terrorists tend to share a Wahhabi theology. So throughout the 1990s, 80s, there was this literalist reading of scripture. And you find this widespread, not just in Saudi Arabia, but every Muslim community that succumbed to Saudi influences. And that's the danger that most Islamists politically may well lean towards creating this utopian state, but theologically they're very much Saudi-based or Wahhabism-based. So it's a combination of Saudi-Wahhabi theology based with revolutionary Islamist politics that produces the bastard child, which is Islamism, that Al-Qaeda aspire towards. So, But it must be said that Al-Qaeda is just a name. It's, it's really a mindset that we must be tackling, literalist rejectionist, Islamist worldview, and not necessarily Al-Qaeda as an organization, because that can become defunct, but those ideas still remain. So it's not a war on terror, as the American government has gone out of its way to suggest, but it's actually a battle of ideas. Hmm. And my sense is that although you were deeply involved and more and more involved and eventually completely estranged from your family because of this, it was when you came very, very close to terror when you, in fact, were kind of on the periphery of a murder that mm. you personally began to shrink back from this. I was part of HT and I just thought talking about jihad or unwarranted killing in the Middle East or calling for the army of a future caliph going into Bosnia, I mean, all that seemed like abstract rhetoric that might be relevant to the Middle East. Not for a moment did I think that once that voice was put out there, once those ideas were implanted in people's minds, that someone somewhere would actually act on that and act on my own doorstep, on my mm. in, in my own college campus. So seeing Muslims shout the sort of slogans you hear in Palestine or in Kashmir, here in London, and then seeing other Muslims literally take up weapons in the name of faith, and to see a dead body in front of one's eyes as a result of those ideas being advocated. I mean, you've, you've got to take responsibility and say, yes, organizations such as HT may not pull the trigger, and they don't. I'm not suggesting they're a murderous organization for a minute. But they create an environment in which it makes it easier for others to do so. And so I saw that happen quite early on, and um, therefore slowly started to move back. And that was the murder of a Nigerian Christian by a Muslim who was part mm -hmm. of the circles in which you were... Mm -hmm. living and working. Yes. I was also yes. really struck by, you You were close to people who did actually fall off that cliff, who became terrorists. The, you knew the um, Asif Han Hanif, who became mm. the first British mm. suicide bomber in Tel Aviv in 2003. And the way you described him as a human being, is you said he was a teddy bear of a guy, that he was generous and kind and selfless and committed. He was. He was. And this is uh, another point that many of us fail to comprehend, that suicide bombers aren't some evil human beings walking in our midst. They're normal, caring individuals. And it's that normality and that sense of being caring when exploited by others that turns them into being suicide bombers. We might not like to hear this, but that's what they are. Right, you said his I very mean, selflessness was the quality that led him to be the person who would strap bombs onto his body. Yes, because he didn't care for his own self and he cared for the Palestinian cause and for... Palestinians in their repression as he saw them in Syria and also in the Palestinian territories. But it was that selflessness that he could give up his own life in order to serve them. Mm. I wonder how that memory you know, mobilizes you now. I mean, there's always a grief when someone 
dies, when someone we know dies, but to have someone who you clearly had such affection for and even admiration, to have that as part of your experience. It brings it home for you. It takes it beyond media headlines and newspaper cliches that these are real, caring human beings. And it's those qualities that we must continue to foster in order to make them understand that by being selfless and killing themselves, they don't advance the cause of the Palestinians one iota. In fact, if anything, it's done them a disservice. Israel's put up this huge wall and Israel's response has been strongly uh, recriminatory as a, a, every time there's a suicide bombing that goes off. So it doesn't do them any favours. And it's not just a strategic thing. It's morally wrong. It's disgusting. You don't take your own life to, to, right. to sort of kill other people. But all of that said, we must be honest about this, that there is a sense of real persecution and powerlessness on the part of people who go and become suicide bombers. Either they fail to understand other ways of addressing this issue, be it parliamentary democracy, be it lobbying, be it creating public awareness, be it engaging in the political process, or they've deliberately disavowed that route and gone down the route of violence, whatever it is, that mindset needs to be opened up and explored and rejected. Right now, we're, we're, you know, throughout the West, we're steering away from trying to understand. So in British government circles, the entire focus is on violent extremism without understanding it's actually extremism that you've got to deal with in order to prevent violence. In my complete unedited conversation with Ed Hussein, there's much more detailed discussion of the ins and outs of Islam and British and European cultural dynamics. Download the free MP3 of that through our website, email newsletter or podcast, or our blog, SOF Observed. And explore the vast, diverse, ongoing conversation we've been conducting these past years with and about global Islam at speakingoffaith.org. After a short break, Ed Hussein's sense of his place in the important and difficult internal dialogue among Western Muslims and his understanding of the North American Muslim community as a beacon to Europe. I'm Krista Tippett. Stay with us. Speaking of Faith comes to you from American Public Media. Speaking of Faith is supported by the Fetzer Institute, sponsor of Karen Armstrong's Charter for Compassion. You can learn more at Fetzer.org. Welcome back to Public Radio's conversation about religion, meaning, ethics, and ideas. I'm Krista Tippett. Today, as the news is full of tightened airport security in response to terrorist threats, we're listening again to my conversation with Ed Hussein. He stirred and deepened British public dialogue with his controversial 2007 memoir, The Islamist, Why I Became an Islamic Fundamentalist, What I Saw Inside, and Why I Left. Ed Hussein has been compared to Ayan Hirsi Ali, the Somali-born former Dutch parliamentarian whose own memoir, The Infidel, details her traumas as a Muslim woman growing up in Africa. She has rejected Islam as fundamentally incompatible with Western culture and democracy. Ed Hussein's path and his prescriptions for Muslims and Western culture are quite different. In Islamic scholarship and spiritual practices, he discovered an antidote to what he calls political Islamism that exploits Islam's adherents but is remote from Islam's teachings. He discerned, as he describes it, that Islam at its core does not teach a monolithic approach to life. He writes, When the Muslims of Indonesia, India, China, Persia, and Africa embraced Islam, they did not disavow their own native cultures. In Mecca, I met Muslims who were unlike in their background and culture, but united in their belief. For me, he concludes, that is the true ummah, a spiritual community, not a political bloc. 
In contrast to Ayaan Hirsi Ali and others, Ed Hussein also insists that Islamic devotion can be reconciled with vigorous, responsible citizenship in Western democracies. And he points to the North American Muslim community as an evolving model of this idea. Those who think that Ayan and I have anything in common just don't understand the nature of the debate we're involved in. Um, rejecting Islamism, the political ideology, doesn't mean you reject a spiritual tradition of 1400 years. The Renaissance that came about in, in Europe came about directly as a result of the contribution Muslim philosophers such as Averroes and Avicenna made. We, My forefathers preserved Greek heritage that was then bequeathed to the West. So I'm not an apologist for the West since I am myself a Westerner. And for my community, especially the, the Muslim community, I want the very best for my community. I'm not hammering my community because I want them to hunker in and uh, avoid debate and discussion. We can't move forward as a community unless we openly have a discussion about issues that trouble fellow Westerners. And my faith is very much based on the fact that here in the West, Western Muslims, Americans, Brits, Spaniards, French, we can fix it here among ourselves before we turn on the Muslim East and suggest, look, issues such as stoning the adulterer, amputating the arm of a thief, or the flogging of a gang rape victim, right. those are barbaric practices. Unless we in the West, Western Muslims, stand up and make that case, I'm afraid that in the long term, we're going to have more Ayan Hirsi Ali's and more Salman Rushdie's in which people continue to reject their Islamic faith under being battered from the Western liberal intelligentsia. So for me, it's about bridging that gap and producing a generation of young, confident, dynamic, articulate Muslims who can stand up for themselves in the West and then go back into the Muslim East and shine a beacon of hope and say, look, we've fixed it in the West, we're equally Muslim, and you too can do the same. Hmm. So tell me what you discovered that, that really did change your life um, at this later point as an adult, what you discovered in Islam. Much of this goes back, I must say, to... American Muslim influences, and that you've got fascinating scholars such as uh, Imam Hamza Yusuf Hansen from California, who I was exposed to here in Britain in the late 1990s, and in him and in others I saw Muslims who were Westerners, who were American, who were English-speaking, who were intelligent, deeply erudite, and connected to a sense of prophetic Islam, connecting themselves right back to the Prophet Muhammad. And they embodied that persona of compassion, of justice, of love, of humanity. And it was really getting more and more sort of involved and close to people like Imam Hansen and others here in in Britain that helped me intellectually come to terms with Islam away from Islamism, the political ideology, and more importantly, discover a spiritual tradition that sits comfortably with other spiritual traditions and looking at human beings as just that, as fellow human beings. Mm. And it's not our duty to judge others, and ultimately it's them and their relationship with God. It's having that inner sense of, of relationship with God that then manifests in your actions on the outside that I personally found worked for me. Um, I'm not suggesting this as a panacea for everyone, but it's mm. something that worked for me. And it very much sat at home with my parents and my family and, and friends. And I wonder if you have a sense of why the North American Muslim experience is so different from the experience you had as a British Muslim. My impression is that It's the fact that you have a very strong national identity that people who, as you say, fresh off the boat, can come and sign up to something. That that identity is more porous somehow. Yeah, it's there. It's palpable. American Muslims are deeply patriotic and deeply proud of being American and being Muslim. Here, we don't have that. You'd be hard-pressed to find Muslims in the north of England saying that they're British Muslims. It just doesn't happen. So there's a different kind of foundation that new generations of North American Muslims are building Mm. on. Mm -hmm. Well, exactly, yes. And, And you see that. I mean, take, for example, the large conferences you have in America among American Muslims. I think one of the motions that was passed was that the Jewish synagogues in America with twin with Muslim mosques. Right, the Islamic Society of North America, I think. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly, the ISNA conference. That's a fascinating example from which not just Europeans but also Arab Muslims can learn in terms of maintaining positive ties between different faiths. Try suggesting something like that to the British Muslim Council here. Almost impossible. Only after six years of kicking and screaming have they decided to attend Holocaust Memorial Day. Mm. 
I mean, that, that's what we're up against. It's, it's a good marrying up of English anti-Semitism, which is very much hush-hush, which is still out there, and then that's married up with that being very vocal from among certain sections of the Muslim community. But it must be said, I mean, post-77, the most anti-Semitic groups, HD among them, have toned down their anti-Semitism. Now, whether it's a question of strategy or principled change, it remains to be seen. With 7-7, you're referring to the July 7th terrorist attacks in 2005, Mm. was it? Um, 52 people killed the largest attack like that on British soil since the war. And this all happened after you, uh, very beyond, far beyond the period of you being radicalized. How has that imprinted British society and the development of all of the aspects of, of what we're discussing about these dynamics in British society? Well, 7-7 was a huge wake-up call to Britain. Mm-hmm. Prior to 7-7, everybody more or less was quite content to allow for Muslim separatism, extremist organizations to quite openly discuss whether they were British or whether they were Muslim and then decide in a conference of about 10,000 people here in London that they were just Muslim and, and Britishness had nothing to do with them. Very deep um, separatism was developing here in Britain and it was considered acceptable because it was all done in the name of multiculturalism, that it's acceptable <laughs> to have difference at that level. So it was multiculturalism gone wild and then suddenly we needed something as horrible as 7-7 to remind us that you allow people to develop in an underworld in which ideas of parliamentary democracy, of liberalism, of secularism have no meaning, then people resort to these ugly means to express their grievances. So since 7-7, there have been several initiatives to try to come to terms with what it is in British society that allows for an underclass to develop that's totally disconnected to the mainstream. On the one hand, you've got that extreme that refuses to acknowledge the fact that multiculturalism has been conducted wrongly and we've made mistakes and we need to correct those. And on on the other extreme, you've got the far right that are suggesting the whole problem is to do with immigration. So between these two extremes, I think there are some of us who are trying to carve out a middle path where to say that, yes, there are problems within the Muslim community that need to be addressed, you know, scriptural, social, political, economic, and there are problems with the mainstream, you know, cultural snobbery, um, arrogance, a sense of history that needs readdressing. You know, so it's it's, it's a two-way street. So we're in the middle of that discussion as a nation, I think, but the jury's out really as to where we'll end up. former Islamist extremist Ed Hussein. At speakingoffaith.org, you can read some of the internal debate about Islam and British society that has taken place on the pages of British newspapers. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is Speaking of Faith from American Public Media, today exploring Ed Hussein's distinctive perspective on the way forward for Muslims and the West. Ed Hussein disavowed radical, politicized Islam in the late 1990s when he was 22. In the intervening years, he's been joined by other high-profile defectors. Majid Nawaz was a contemporary of Ed Hussein in Hizbut Tahrir. He was imprisoned and reportedly tortured in Egypt as a member of that organization. After his return to the UK in 2006, he announced that he, like Ed Hussein, had been reformed by discovering new substance in Islamic spirituality and theology. Nawaz has traveled and lectured across Western Europe, spreading this message to young people he influenced previously towards radicalism. In 2008, Nawaz and Hussein co-founded an organization they describe as the world's first counter-extremist think tank. It's based in London. But even these kinds of constructive developments are leading to more public discussion with and about religion than is usual or entirely comfortable in mainstream British culture. In the left-wing newspaper The Guardian, for example, the journalist Madeline Bunting posed this question. Multiculturalism has toppled the notion of being British as being white. Can it also become true that British identity will no longer be synonymous with Christian secular accommodation? You know, something you mentioned a minute ago about how God is absolutely has been taken completely out of the public sphere in Britain. What's fascinating is how Islam 
and British Muslims may now be forcing or intensifying a cultural reevaluation throughout British society of the place of religion in culture and public life. You're absolutely right. And that's why there's such a feisty defense of atheism suddenly in Britain. In that it's it's amazing that people like Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and others, especially Hitchens, I think, the name he gave his book was a direct defiance of the Muslim ritual mm-hmm. prayer opening. Oh, yeah, God is not great because we say God is great. Mm-hmm. So that's very interesting. And, you know, he takes several pops at Muslims in his book. Um, Martin Amis, one of our top writers, has gone on the record recently trying to assert that tradition of a God-free society. Where we are as a country 300 years on from the entire sort of Reformation, Renaissance experience, and it took two world wars to defend the strong liberal tradition. And I don't advocate the mixing of religion and politics in the public domain. But at the same time, people who have faith-based convictions shouldn't be shut out of the public debate. Just as you have Christian Democrats in Central Europe, we can have Muslim Democrats in Western Europe who, much like Tony Blair, who derived his passion and sense of justice for politics based on his understanding of scripture, but without shoving it down people's throats. Well, he kept it almost very secret and compartmentalized, or at least out of the limelight while he was prime minister. But that's because he was advised by people like Alistair Campbell who said, we don't do God. Mm-hmm. And that's part of the problem, I think, that um, Muslims here feel that their sense of identity when it comes to religion is shunned upon because they can't express themselves for what they are, what we are. Same as, uh, as in France. But in America, that's another crucial difference in that God is out there in the public domain. So most Americans understand what it means Not always to uncontroversially, but, but there's a sense that it's... That we do, God. Yeah, but your presidents repeatedly say, God bless America. Can you imagine our our prime minister saying, God bless Britain? People would freak out. I wonder, um, you are very, have been very critical and and yourself have been criticized for pointing at, you know, kind of a almost vibrant world of many, many different kinds of politicized Islamic groups, themselves not necessarily terrorist, but perhaps uh, inclining some young people to that. But I also sense, as I read some of what you've been saying recently and look at your book, that you, you know, that you do see in the very diversity of the Muslim, the varied spectrum of the Muslim community in Britain, you do also see that as a source of hope. Um, and, and you point to that, that it is not one thing to be Muslim in Britain. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, Islam has never been, will never be a, a monolithic entity. It's always been diverse. It's the attempt by people who have a politicized version of Islam post-1960s to impose their brand of Islam on everybody else that vexes me and so many other people. That You know, you can go and practice your politicized Islam and go and call for your destruction of Israel and go and call for your confrontation with the West and you go deal with it, but don't go and do that in the name of my faith and don't expect me to back you because you're somehow a fellow believer. I'm sorry that's not going to happen. I think it was Booker T. Washington, the, the great American civil rights campaigner, who said, cast down your buckets where you are. Um, we're here and we will cast down our buckets here in the West. Hmm. I did write down a sentence in your book. You said, even today, a primary reason for Western failure in the war on terror is an innate inability to understand the Islamist psyche. So this is one thing you would want policymakers in the West to be attentive to. What else? What else needs attention and understanding that simply escapes a lot of the public discussion that we now have? For for most policymakers, their concern is when's the next bomb going to go off and how are we going to prevent that from happening? As long as we're secure, who cares what's going on among the minutiae details of Muslim communal discourse? Mm-hmm. But there's also the other factor that you know most of our politicians here in Britain, at least, are from the 1960s generation. You know, most of them don't understand what it means to have faith. And when you don't understand what it means to be a Christian in your own tradition and what the power of the belief in an afterlife can do to you when perverted, that basic fact hasn't been deeply appreciated by our policymakers here. And as a result, they just think pumping money into resources, be it socioeconomic or tweaking foreign policy, is somehow going to fix this problem. It's not. It's much deeper. So so Uh, clearly everyone, every human being today has a stake in Muslim communal discourse. And yet outsiders, non-Muslims can't lead really or 
or guide or even contribute to that Muslim communal discourse? I mean, how can non-Muslims, both governments and citizens, be constructive forces so that that... By engaging, by engaging on key ideas, mm. by engaging and putting out a clear idea of what the West stands for. Um, but for me, it's about getting our house, the Muslim house, in order so that we can stand up and become a dynamic community that's not a burden but an asset to the West. That, that's why I think it's vital that people such as myself who've lived in the Arab world, who've gone through the extremist experience in Britain, who are now on the other side and see Islam to be a totally different thing than we saw it then. I mean, it's almost like a religious and human duty for us to speak out. And if by doing so we upset people who are on the far left and people who are on the far right, well, you know, I'm sorry, but we've got to do what we're doing. Many people will ask someone like you or other Muslims, and we've spent some time on this today, you know, what is it that draws Muslims to violence? And But I want to ask you the, the converse question, you know, from your experience. This would all also be the story of someone like Malcolm X, who became a mainstream moderate Muslim late in his life after he encountered traditional Islam, Islamic spirituality. You know, what is it conversely about Islam that you find redemptive, not just an antidote to extremism, but that really galvanizes you as a human being now, as well as a public figure? There was an incident when, you know, at the time of the Prophet, young girls who were born to families were always buried because they were considered to be a sense of shame. And one of his companions came up to him and said that in the past I buried my daughter and as I was burying her she was wiping off the soil from my clothes and looking back I feel extremely bad about what I did do you think God will ever forgive me and the prophet smiled and touched this companion of his and spoke in Arabic and said that God is most compassionate most most forgiving and and, and forget that and try to do good for people but I, I recently had a baby daughter and, and those memories come back and not just that particular teaching of the Prophet but also looking at my daughter, I, I want her to grow up in a world in which she doesn't succumb to the pressures that I succumb to, she doesn't buy the extremist mindset that I ended up buying. So it's, you know, it's not just looking at the past and, and finding redemptive lessons within the Quran and within the teaching of the Prophet Muhammad but also looking to the future and trying to build a future for the next generation. This notion of Ihsan was uh, important to you as you were coming back to Islam. Ihsan is the highest way of being Muslim, in other words, manifesting one's godliness or one's sense of compassion to fellow humans. Without doubt, I mean, it's something that one aspires to, but often it's not something that's easy to attain, especially in, in, in the modern world. How do you translate Ihsan? I know different people use different English words to translate it. Attaining spiritual excellence, mm. and that's just a stab at it. Mm -hmm. um, these are spiritual matters, and I leave those to masters such as Sheikh Hamza Yusuf Hansen and um, T.J. Winter from Cambridge and others. I try not to delve into that. My, my fight is with people who want to perverse my faith. <laughs> well, this is my last question. I mean, you know, as you think about your baby daughter, I mean, do you worry about how you will raise her to bring together um, her her Muslim sensibility, her Muslim faith with, with her British identity. How do you think you're going to tackle that? I mean, this has been on my mind, not just from the moment she was born, but before that, in that the community that she will be interacting with is not an easy community to interact with as it stands now. So, for example, when my wife and I named her, we gave her a name that worked in both communities. So, for example, in Arabic, her name, Kamila, means someone who's complete and perfect, right. translated into English, Camilla, it also works in right. English-speaking circles. So it's those things, you know, so that she feels part of both worlds, as I do now, and not part of any, any particular sectarian community. Muslims aren't a tribal people where we always have been inherently humane and outward-looking. In recent years, we've become inward-looking. 
And if Camilla can grow up and be an outward-looking, compassionate human being, then I think, you know, 20, 30 years later, we would be successful in developing a Western Islam that's progressive, that's dynamic, that's at home with its surroundings and can continue to produce people who are part of both traditions and comfortable in being so. Ed Hussein lives near London. His book is The Islamist, Why I Became an Islamic Fundamentalist, What I Saw Inside, and Why I Left. The counter-extremist think tank he co-founded and co-directs is called Quilliam and is based in London. To make this an hour of radio, we had to cut some interesting discussion about British society and Ed Hussein's sense of what Western cultures need to understand about the radicalized, politicized Islamist mentality. You can download an MP3 of that entire unedited interview through our website, podcast, email newsletter, or our blog, SOF Observed. Find all this at speakingoffaith.org. Speaking of Faith is produced by Colleen Scheck, Chris Hegel, and Nancy Rosenbaum. Our producer and editor of All Things Online is Trent Gillis with Andrew Dayton. Kate Moose is the managing producer of Speaking of Faith, and I'm Krista Tippett. Speaking of Faith is supported by the Fetzer Institute, sponsor of Karen Armstrong's Charter for Compassion. You can learn more at Fetzer.org. Additional support is provided by the Ford Foundation, a resource for innovative people and institutions worldwide, on the web at FordFound.org. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs. And the George Family Foundation, funding innovative ideas in integrative medicine, education, and spirituality in everyday life. Speaking of Faith is extending its reach throughout America with support from Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private foundation. Next time, whale songs and elephant loves. Acoustic biologist Katie Payne reflects on life after years of listening to two of the world's most exotic creatures. Please join us. American Public Media.